So all right, we're going to get started, and the way we get started is the right way, which is with prayer. Okay, so let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, excuse me. Almighty, um, excuse me. Almighty and ever-living God, you fulfilled your promise by sending the gift of the Holy Spirit to unite disciples of all nations in the cross and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. By the preaching of the gospel, spread this gift to the ends of the earth. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay, so we got a fair amount of stuff to get through today. Um, quick question, though. How many of you all read all of Romans as part of your homework? Just listening to it on audiobook. Sure, I, I think so. <laughs> I read it once or twice in the three minutes. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, it is for me. It's a lot of stuff. No, no, trust me. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's a lot to consider and take into account for sure. Um, I was wondering because I, uh, most of y'all have Bibles that have, uh, you know, Verse numbers, chapter numbers, things like that. If you're interested, I would recommend uh, I would recommend investing if you have the spare income and you care to have one more Bible. Uh, I have this one. It's a, a New King James version. That's kind of the one that I tend to prefer the most. Although ESV is good and NIV is not bad. Um, but whatever, you can get any version you want in a reader's edition. So if you want to take a look at this later on, uh, I like it. This is what I use to read Romans uh, for this class because it doesn't have any verse markings in it, except for maybe like, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20. And then the chapter markings are like very small on the side here. So you're not distracted by the cross um, references. You're not distracted by how many verses until I get to the end of this chapter. But, and, and not even, they don't even really have any section headings either, except for like major sections. So I recommend this. It's very good for devotional use. If you just kind of want to read the Bible uh, without doing an in-depth study, I recommend a reader's Bible for sure. Um, kind of helps out. And there's some in all different translations. So just something to personal recommendation there. Uh, but for tonight, we're going to get started on Romans 1, 1 through 17. Okay, so session two, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, so, and, and, and we're going to be focusing on Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Uh, does anybody want to read that for us just so we can have the right frame of reference here? Just write underneath the heading. What's that? No, no. Uh, if you'll read Romans 1, 1 through 17. 
because that's what you're supposed to read beforehand, and so I just want to make sure that we get that out there and uh, we're, we're all on the same page. So that, that's cover for y'all that did read all of Romans but didn't go back and read verses 1 through 17. So. Oh, I did all of it. Oh, good for you. Yeah, I, did all of it. I have no prizes, just so you know, uh, for extra work. <laughs> so uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, whoever wants to read that for us. Paul, a servant of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to this human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you are also, and you also are among those who called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his, to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness now. Constantly, I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, so that's our reference for today. Uh, so our session is titled, I Am Not Ashamed of the Gospel. So uh, I'll start us off here with reading, reading the, the parts here. Maybe I'll call on some other folks to chime in. All right. Uh, since the end of the 18th century, archaeologists and... 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 and Natives of Egypt have discovered thousands of ancient letters. These garbage piles of papyrus or reed paper letters have taught scholars a great deal about letters in St. Paul's day. Letters typically begin with a short greeting at the top of the scroll. This greeting included much of the same information we find on an envelope of our mail or at the top of an email. So using the following outline, uh, divide up Paul's uh, letter into, into verses according to the typical style of that time. So, you know, so just tell me, 
which verses was it referencing here? Did y'all write anything down for that, or is that not really? Again, name the sender one to six. One to six, verses one to six. That's right. So, yeah, he's saying, uh, Paul, a servant. Yeah, so he's saying, like, from Paul. And by the way, I am all these things. Right? We're going to go through all of them. I am a servant of Jesus, or a slave of Jesus Christ, right? Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, so on and so forth, right? All the way through verse 6. So if that's saying who it's from, which verse or verses include the name of who it's to? The addressee. I have one seven. Mm-hmm. Technically, yeah, technically, uh, and sometimes we have to do this. We have to break up verses into parts, so like 7A, 7B, yeah, that's C. What I did. 7A yeah, yeah, so 7A, so chapter 1, verse 7, part A. And you, your Bible might already do that too. It might already have 7 broken up into two parts. Mine does. Uh, I think both of mine do. Uh, my ESV and my New King James. So, uh, so if that part seven A, uh, where's the greetings? Naturally, that starts in one eight. Mm. The greetings. I put seven B. Oh no. Yeah. How about one seven? Yeah. Yeah, it's seven B, right? Yeah. So it's he's saying grace to you and peace from God our Father and the and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So that's the greetings. Grace to you. Greetings. Uh, and then to the thanksgiving would be starting in verse 8 and following, right? It kind of goes on from there. Um, and then you see the body of the letter, the actual meat of what he's trying to get at is already filled in for you. Chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 15, verse 33. And uh, so then if that's the case, and you can kind of guess... Where the closing greetings would be. <laughs> Where are the closing greetings? 16. Chapter 16. 16 right? yeah. yeah. To be precise, verse 1 through 27. But that's all of verse that's all of chapter 16, right? Oh, I had 3 through 16. I don't know. Did I miss it? Uh yeah, I sing I I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea. Uh so she's included as part of the greetings. Um yeah, so I'd say I'd say that's part of the greetings for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, all of chapter sixteen. So so we've got that outline of what we would see as a letter. It's a long letter, um, but it's also interesting that Paul is not. I didn't get into this with the other class, but do y'all think it's kind of interesting, or does is it problematic for you that Paul didn't actually put his hand to paper for this? Does that, does that bother y'all at all? I mean, it's kind of like the same thing of uh, uh, the sermons we have from Luther today. He probably didn't, in fact, I know he did not write them out by hand. He had, and he's even said this in his preaching and, and in, in, a, in other writings, he preached from kind of an outline and from notes and having a Bible and things like that in the pulpit. Someone else was in the congregation writing it down shorthand and then they'd go back later and fill in the gaps but that doesn't make it any less of luther's sermon right just like this doesn't make it any less of a uh, correspondence from paul to have somebody else write it down for you as a scribe 
right? So, and then, but I, some people get a little worried about that because that I guess they get hyper literal and say, oh, I don't know, Tertius is the one who actually wrote this. So, <laughs> who's giving the content, right? It's it's Paul. It's like the boss dictating to the secretary. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the president doesn't write his own speeches either, so it's a little more difficult to do it at the same time. I would think. <laughs> yeah. Well, Especially he does. Especially the way you had to do it back then, like yeah. everything had to be. He does some things. Uh, he does. He does write some letters by his own hand, but um, there's 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 one part I forget, and I'm blanking. Forgive me for blanking. There is one part where he's saying, "With my own hand, I write mm -hmm. this, so you can know that it is from me." Sort of thing, right? Do you know how long it took him to write from. this letter? How long? No, I have no idea. But um, he didn't write it in the two hours it took me to read it. No, I'm sure he didn't. But then again, you know, it's 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 one of those things. When we studied the book of Hebrews, we got into the question of who really wrote Hebrews, and the I think from Luther's time on, people thought that it was not Paul, but before Luther, everybody thought it was Paul. In fact, in uh, bef before the Reformation and the bindings of the Bible, the the ordering of the books that we have them in now, Hebrews was Hebrews came right after Romans in a lot of compilations of the Bible, because everybody thought this is a sermon that Paul gave and somebody wrote it down in shorthand, and transcribed it later on. Uh, I like that one better, honestly, myself, because it's because if you read it, it sounds like a sermon. Because there's parts where he's saying, and it is written somewhere, da, 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 but he quotes it verbatim. But he doesn't say, it's Psalm 127 or whatever, you know. He's just saying, it's written somewhere, that this is da da da. Uh, and that's kind of what Paul does here, too, where he says, for Isaiah says, right? He doesn't say, oh, it's the, it's, it's the second half of Isaiah or whatever. They didn't really have chapter and verse at that time. But I just want to ask that question, if anybody was bothered that Paul didn't write this with his own hand. Uh, but if that doesn't bother you, that's a good thing. In fact, I'm glad it doesn't because I really don't want to get into why it's not a big deal. Uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a little bit of a long day. You know, two classes, uh, you know, and the heat. Maybe the heat's getting to me. Wearing black in Central Texas is not the best idea most of the time. But I've got a special collar. It's plastic. So it's called a Claricool. It doesn't really do anything. Um, anyways, Paul's opening greeting is much more elaborate in describing himself and his addressees than most private letters. He spends more words on greeting here than in most of his other letters recorded in the New Testament. So... Uh, first question there under that section, based on your knowledge of the Roman Christians thus far, why do you think Paul places so great an emphasis on the greeting? What did we talk about last time that was going on at that time in the Church of Rome? Uh, the Jewish descending Christians were basically kicked out of Rome. Yeah. yeah. So you only had the Gentile Christians there. Yeah, you only had the Gentiles. Um and then when the Jews actually could come back, they found that, let's just say, let's just say here, uh, I'm going to try and find as divisive uh, a scenario as I can in this congregation. Uh, and being Texans, what's more divisive than somebody from the north coming in and taking your spot on the council, <laughs> right? Uh, let's just say somebody, 
somebody from like South Dakota or something like that came in, or a Californian came in, uh, yeah, uh, came in and said, you know, well, while you were gone, somebody had to be the head elder, somebody had to be the president of the council, and here's who we are, And but now that you're back, what are we going to do, right? Uh, so he's trying to find some, uh, or even, I think, even, even in Texas, you might even get away with saying, you know, well, what if somebody from Oklahoma came in? and took over it's like oh that's uh, them's fighting words right so uh that's a little too far north for us um it's funny because my wife is from upstate new york but that's 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 another thing um, what's that we'll forgive her she's here now yeah well and one flesh right so your, your children were born here <laughs> don't let amelia hear you say that uh so Based on that, you see that there are divisions, right? Uh, so he's trying to strengthen their bond in the Lord and one another. But it's not fair for us to even say, you know, as much as we like to joke about it, you know, Northerners and Southerners, there's a division there, but we're all one country, really, in the end of the day. And I don't think that we, I mean, everybody's got their prejudices, but they weren't as deep-seated as the Gentiles and the Jews, Right, that's a completely different people group altogether. Uh, completely different heritage, bloodline, everything. But what he's doing is he's he's not saying those divisions don't matter at all, right? Because if they didn't matter at all, he wouldn't have to say things like Jesus is descended from David. He could say, "What does it matter?" But he doesn't say that. He he. Um, gives credence to the fact that it matters the family that you come from. It matters who your, uh, who your ancestors are, but ultimately it pales in comparison to the fact that you are united in faith in Christ. Right? That's the most important thing, which is why at the end of uh, Revelation, you see that there are all... Nations and tribes and races represented, you know, it's not like that we're all like washed away that it doesn't matter, you know, our uh, The different races and tribes and ethnicities we came from but that all of them and every tongue and every tribe Kneels at the foot of Jesus, right? That's what really matters uh, that we're all united in faith So um, any any thoughts on that question 10 anybody want to add to that? Or challenge me a little bit. I like a little challenge. So, I had put that he wants them to know how happy he is to hear that they're they have their faith and how excited he is at being able to go and visit and teach them. Absolutely. Yeah. That whatever. He's trying to make them feel like, oh, I'm glad to hear that you want me here, and we're going to share some stuff, and you know. Absolutely. Um, the fact that. Uh, the fact that he is joyful and uh, anxious on some level in a good way to come and to speak the gospel and that they are united in the gospel and who Jesus is. And it sets a more positive note up front instead of saying, y'all are a bunch of sinners, you need me here to save you. <laughs> you know, he's like, yeah. I'm glad we're here, we're going to move forward. And, right, you know. right. That's what I got. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get into more about the Thanksgiving that he gives for them. Uh, other letters 
he doesn't give thanksgivings uh, because there's a lot of problems going on, like Galatians, right? But we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Any, anybody else want to add to that? Uh, why do you think Paul places a great emphasis on the greeting? Well, I wrote down that uh, they haven't met him yet. Okay. Yeah, he. They don't. They haven't met him. So maybe he's trying to establish that he knows what's going on, and that he's trying to remind them of what's really important. Uh, and yeah, they haven't met him yet. So, what do you mean by that? That he's just trying to do all he can to greet him as best he can. Yeah. Make a good a good impression, I guess you could say. Sure. What's that? Breaking the ice, yeah. Addressing the elephant in the room, as it were, on some level, up front. Yeah, definitely. Those are good thoughts. So um, meeting somebody for the first time and say, oh, I've heard good things about you. Absolutely. You know? so. Absolutely, yeah. You don't want to just come and be like, <laughs> come up to somebody and just say, oh, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I heard about your divorce or something. It's yeah. like, oh, that's a bad, bad opening line, right? Uh, it's like... Oof, that's not great. Yeah, no, you wanna you wanna um, have the best possible greeting, right? Um, so, how might Paul's emphasis on greeting affect your practice as a Christian, uh, as as a Christian, uh, as an individual, and as a congregation? What do you think? What do y'all put? I put. Mm -hmm. If we greet others both in private and as a congregation with excitement that we are happy to be Christians and excited to share that good news with them, hopefully it will open their hearts to the Holy Spirit. I like that. That's good. Anybody else want to chime in on that one? Because really, answers will vary. But yeah. I said that you know when you're you're starting out as solidifying your purpose, like this is where I'm coming from. This is. You know who we are together, and just getting your conversation from a direct point of travel. Mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, absolutely. That you want to be direct in uh, greeting people, and we're here as a church to be messengers for God. Right. Something like that for sure. Any variation of that too, right? Um, I like it. Anybody else want to? Chime in on that? Yeah. Just as a thought, uh, you know, I like to greet people, but visitors. Yeah. And quite often they want to identify with where they were, came from, or who was their pastor or something. They want to see that unity, that uh, among. Yeah. Yeah. The connection that we have that uh, it's funny, I'll see people. And if they're Missouri Synod Lutherans, they'll come right in and say, Hi, we're, we go to Our Savior in such and such Minnesota or whatever, and yeah. we're here for the weekend. And then I'll, and, and just, just, just so I'm satisfied with my curiosity, I usually say, Oh, okay, is that Missouri Synod? And they'll say, Yeah. And I was like, Okay, and your pastor's name? And they'll tell me the pastor's name. It's like, oh, Okay, very nice, very nice. You know, it's establishing that point. And I think of we're contact. trying to avoid. Uh, Telling them who we are, I just show really? interest in who they are, where they come, showing that interest without boasting our boasting our, or, or yeah. 
So you say that, so, so you mean that uh, we're trying to avoid telling who we are, though? Is that what she said? I thought she said that we're trying to avoid telling who we are. Is that what she said? No, we don't, okay. we don't start out, or at least I don't. When I yeah. greet somebody, yeah. find out who they are, where they're back, their background, I don't come in right away and say, well, we're glad you're here because we're so good and we've got all this. Instead of tooting our own horn. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I, if anybody was going to make that their opening line, I wouldn't recommend them for the official readers of the church uh, to, to directly say how good we are. But no, I think, I think the point was that, you know, you welcome people, but you also make sure that they know who we are on some level too. Uh, but that kind of becomes personal on some level because you might say, oh, my husband was a pastor and we were at this church and this church, especially if they come from a church that y'all were at, right? You'd say, oh, that's a point of connection that we have. Isn't that wonderful that we can all come together, right? And, and that we're all here for the same purpose of the gospel, right? I, uh, unfortunately, I don't know if that's a common thing that people say, though, to <laughs> say we're all coming together for the gospel. Uh, maybe it should be. We're all we're all part. We're all here for the same thing. Uh, so yeah, I, it's something to think about how we can individually greet people. We all have our own ways, um, and Paul is a good example for how we might be able to tailor that in a different way. That's um, not necessarily the way that we would have done it, but it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Maybe we can improve in some way by seeing how Paul does things here, um, and also. I was thinking, and I mentioned it this morning, but you know, we have people in our congregation who do hone in on new people and welcome them and do a really good job of it. I wonder if on top of that, we could go further and make like official greeters or something like that. I've seen that at other congregations. I don't know if that's something we'd be interested in, but it's something to think about having official people saying, you know, well, I'm, of course, going to greet somebody, but today's my day to stand at the door directly and say hi to people or something. You know, uh, this is this is my Sunday to actually stand over here, and then once I'm done with them, so-and-so can have them or something. I don't know. Uh, but also, not just that, but if, they're, if, if they join and they're new, maybe inviting them out to lunch or, invite, or, or having them over to your house or something like that, right? There's, there's all kinds of ways you can greet and make people feel welcome in the congregation, right? Uh, any other thoughts on that before we move on? Well, I think in our society, you know, you meet somebody and say, ah, how are you, you know, how things going and all that small talk kind of stuff. Yeah. My personality is forget all that, just get to the point. That's, that's why we have people like Audrey who are way, way better. <laughs> much, much better at the, the greeter situation than I am. Yeah. That so James, as a congregation, we there yeah. are enough people that we have that we don't need to appoint greeters. We've got that's true. People yeah. that just do that's it. That's true. And maybe we don't need that. Maybe though we could. Maybe though we could work on going the extra step for new members. Re, you know, reaching out to them and saying. How you doing? You know, glad you're part of our congregation now. And uh, would you like to go out to lunch on Tuesday or something? I don't know. Uh, there's there's always ways to improve on these things and to um, 
make sure that nobody falls through the cracks. I mean, uh, yeah, it's just something to think about. Something to think about. I think you're right, though. I don't know if we we're not big enough to have to like designate a greeter. Uh, we're just the right size for that. Where as soon as somebody comes in the door, you got at least two or three people going after them saying, "Hey, how are you?" Which is great. It's great. Yeah, if you have a designated person or whatever, then some of the people will think, "Well, I'm not supposed to be doing that job." Yeah, there's the downside to it. There's a downside. It's like, well, it's not my Sunday, so I'm not going to say anything. There's a downside always, but with the best intentions forward, we should think about ways that we might be able to improve. Not that what we're doing is bad, but we can always do better, right? Um, but I do, I do appreciate that about, about the people here is that they are very welcoming to people who come through the door who they don't know who they are, right? It's very nice. Um, I know of some situations where that's not the case. So and I've I'm had very people thankful. tell me that they appreciate it because they have visited other places and nobody talked to them. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that. <clears throat> yeah, the first time I ever came to this church, I walked in and walked out, and not one person spoke to me. Oh, really? How long ago was that? That was a while back. It was several years, several years ago. <laughs> Before I got here, right? Before you got here. <laughs> so everything's better now that I'm here. So anyways, uh, I'm just kidding. I think it was a different group of people, but I, I came in, nobody spoke to me, went, sat through the service, kind of hung around a little bit at the end, and then nobody spoke to me, so I just left. Well, that's because Audrey wasn't here that day, so. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know if she was, she would have come up and talked to you oh, for yeah. sure. But, yeah. All right, how about the next page? Let's just keep rolling on here. Page 12. Um, in his first sentence, three phrases modify or define Paul, as we talked about last time, slave of Christ Jesus, right? Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, don't assume that you know what these common words mean. First, Paul is a servant slash slave of Jesus Christ, in the long tradition of those who are servants of the Lord, uh, in Hebrew, uh, excuse me, in Hebrew, um, the uh, the Ebed Yahweh, uh, as applied to Moses, Joshua, Elijah, David, Nehemiah, and the like. Right. Uh, second, he is called apostle. He is a called apostle. So Paul does not appoint himself. Like the other 12 apostles, Paul has seen the risen Christ and is called by him. You see Galatians 1.1 1, 1 to support that as well. His authority is no less than theirs. Third, he is one who has been appointed for the gospel of God. Uh, see that also in Galatians 1.15. Paul's wording emphasizes a past action, appointed, right, that has a continuing result, that he remains appointed for the gospel. His servanthood and apostleship are based on the gospel that originates from God. Paul explains the gospel by first anchoring it in the Old Testament. It does not it does uh, it does not um, excuse me it does not um, it does not originate with Jesus and Paul, but has been promised beforehand, and the gospel is about a person, the Son of God whom Paul serves. 
Both the human and divine natures of the Son are brought out in the parallel structures of chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, that Jesus is begotten of the family of David according to the flesh, and Jesus is declared the Son of God on the basis of the resurrection according to the Spirit. So this Jesus Christ is Lord and is the source of the grace and apostleship Paul has received in order to bring about the obedience of faith mentioned in uh, chapter 1, verse 5. So, uh, let's go through that next part there and take a look at those three different terms, you know, um, slave, called, and gospel, and see how the way we usually use them in our day and age versus how Paul uses them. So, when with that first term, servant slash slave, right? And, and remember, I, last time I really emphasized uh, the understanding that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is just stronger, more accurate language for what was going on here. How might people see that term slave nowadays? It's a negative term. Yeah. It's like people being held against their will. They don't want to be there. Right. So okay. it's a negative thing. Yeah, negative thing. Um, and uh, or, or maybe even something, I, this is a bit of a nuanced way of seeing it, but maybe some people in America see it as something that was um, a great evil that we've done away with completely. Is that the case? No. 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 Uh, there's many different kinds of slavery in the world and even in America. I mean, according to Scripture, what do we believe about debt? That the debtor is slave to the lender, right? You can be a debt slave. And people will, might, might say, well, that's not like what it happened with... It's like, yeah, but you have somebody still dictating how you're supposed to live your life, right? You're still... And a very basic sense of the term, I'm not talking about the specific things about, you know, uh, the Civil War, the antebellum South or anything like that. But in a very general sense, we have modern day slaves. I mean, there's sex slavery, you know, uh, there are slaves throughout the world still today. Um, but it's not so much that slavery is evil. In fact, Scripture never really takes a stance on whether it's evil or really all that good, except for when it's talking about Jesus Christ, right? In the sense that if you are a slave of Christ, it is a good, good thing, not because slavery is great, but because your master is the one who is good. You see what I mean by that? It's a, it's a, it's a very important distinction to make that... Um, we can say that we are slaves of Jesus Christ, not because slavery is such an awesome thing and everybody should be a slave, yeah, but that Jesus Christ is our master. And that means that we are ultimately in the best possible scenario because scripture also talks about being a slave of one of two different kinds of masters. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. And sin is a cruel, cruel master. It never gets enough out of you. It works you to the bone. It destroys you completely. Whereas Jesus Christ gives you nothing but life 
salvation, grace, mercy, and peace, and all these good things that God would want, right? So I don't think we should shy away from that term of slave, especially when we're talking about being a slave of Christ. It's a good, good thing. Any thoughts on that before we go on to the next one? I'll put this. Paul speaks of it as an honor. Yeah. It's like a badge to wear. It's a great thing to be a slave of Christ. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this. If, if, if Paul was ashamed of being a slave of Christ, would he put it at the very beginning of his letter? Usually when you give something such a high point of prominence, it means you want them to know first and foremost that that is... He's putting a big emphasis on that. That's right. It's a big, big emphasis. In fact, in the Greek, it's like the second letter. So it says, Paul, slave of Christ Jesus. <laughs> it's like, that's who he is. I don't think if he was proud of it, he wouldn't have included it anyway. That's right. Yeah. If it wasn't something that should be emphasized, he'd just leave it out completely. Yeah. yeah. Or have it like lower down on the list, right? Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? On that term? Okay. Anybody else? Okay, because we got a fairly good amount of stuff to get going through here. Um, how about the term called? How do we use that term typically today? Called. Start there. I would think in today's, today's environment, uh, calling is something that comes from like in here maybe. Okay. And not from an outside source. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think, well, I don't, let me know what y'all think, but when you say something like a calling, that seems to be a very subjective thing. Uh, we were talking about this morning, some people might say, you know, my profession is engineer, doctor, uh, police officer, nurse, whatever, and that is my calling, right? People would say that typically, um, and that's not wrong. Um, but it's more of like, you know, I felt drawn to that profession. It's still fairly subjective on a personal level. Um, not to say that it's bad. I mean, the Lord moves us in many different ways. Uh, and also it's supported in our, well, it's, first of all, it's supported by Holy Scripture. But second of all, it's supported by um, our small catechism. When you get to the table of duties, Right. In the small catechism, um, it's, the subtitle is Certain Passages of Scripture for Various Holy Orders and Positions, Admonishing Them About Their Duties and Responsibilities. And that includes uh, not just pastors, uh, but what the hearers of the pastors owe to the pastor, right? Uh, civil government, mothers and fathers, right? Uh, citizens, husbands, wives, parents, children, workers of all kinds, uh, employers and supervisors, youth, widows, and everyone. So we all have a certain calling that goes outside of what we do for a living. Uh, I'm not just a pastor. I'm also a son to my parents. I'm also a husband to my wife. I'm also a father to my children, right? I'm also a citizen of the state of Texas and the United States, right? Um, and I'm also, what else am I? 
Uh, a resident of Fredericksburg. Yeah, sure. I mean, a citizen of Fredericksburg. Yeah, something like that. I mean, there are hierarchies in that, you know, one's more important than the other. Actually, another vocation that I have is a Christian. You know, and I was taught, uh, thankfully, I was taught that uh, as a pastor, a lot of pastors get sidetracked in thinking that being the pastor is the most important thing in their life. And I was uh, counseled at the seminary. It's like, no, no, your first calling is as a Christian, and then as a husband and a father, and then as a pastor. Yeah, all those things come before being a pastor. So if being a pastor is getting in the way of you being uh, a father or a husband or, God forbid, a Christian, then you really need to check your priorities and find out what vocation you need to be giving uh, priority to. But... I think most of the time people might say called is kind of like, they probably say more of like, I'm in, I'm employed or I work for so-and-so, or this is what I do, you know? But like I said this morning, um, if I met an engineer who said I'm called, like that's my calling to be an engineer, I'm pretty sure I'd have a better conversation with that guy than one that just said, no, nah, you know, that's what I do, you know? If, if if you feel called to be those things, um, I think that's a that's a good thing. It's a better way to see it for sure. Um, so outside, huh? Yeah, good. I was going to say I think people who feel like they were called, like police officers and teachers and pastors and things, if they feel like they were called to be in that position, versus yeah, I just ended up going into engineering school. They have more passion for their job yeah. if they feel like that they were called to do something. There's more, um, there's more weight there. You know, there's a more meaningful side of it for sure. Uh, yeah. What if, what if your pastor just came, came to you or just like kind of said nonchalantly one day in conversation, yeah, I just kind of fell into being a pastor. No big deal. I guess it was my calling. Yeah, yeah, it's like, I guess I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, yeah, that's not great. <laughs> it doesn't instill a whole lot of confidence. That's like if your doctor was just like, yeah, you know, it just kind of happened. I just, I just kind of became a doctor, so what's going on? How can I help you today? Right? Uh, so, yeah, so out, uh, yeah, people think... I think called though, and, and even seeing your calling, your vocation, um, in the way that I just mentioned according to scripture is still the way that we as Christians would say it. But outside of the church, I think really people just kind of say, oh, it's just something I'm passionate about. Not necessarily that God led me to do this, right? So it's kind of separated from that aspect of um, God leading you in a certain way. It was kind of all up to you, maybe. Okay, so we've got those two down. What about gospel? Uh, how might the world, or you know, people today typically use the term gospel? It's just a rule that doesn't get broken. It's the law. Oh, that's interesting. So, so okay, interesting. So, a gospel, the, the rule that doesn't get broken. Oh, well, yeah, it's like rule. The first rule is this, and that's gospel. Oh, interesting. Okay, wow, that is such a confusion of law and gospel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll go in that vein because 
maybe people do see it that way. Um, or they use that term in that Sure. Way. Yeah, that's that's understandable. I I would see it, maybe y'all have heard the term like, you know, that's the gospel truth, mm-hmm. right? Stuff like that. There's even gospel music, right? Um, so it's funny you say gospel. Um, and the distinction between law and gospel is one that is not easily, it, it, it is easily defined on the surface, but the deeper you get, it, you have, it becomes harder and harder to parse things out sometimes. It's a, a skill that you'll be mastering for the rest of your life is the distinction between law and gospel. But the, and the reason why I like to say that, it's very interesting, you said the gospel is a rule that you do not break. Oh, that's so interesting. Let me ask you all this, and if y'all have answered this question before and you know what I'm going to say, don't answer. Um, but when Jesus says, um, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, is that law or gospel? Gospel? Okay. Anybody else want to say law or gospel? Love your neighbor as yourself. Is that law or gospel? I have to say it's it's law. It is law. It's, it's <laughs> it first, is law. It's the first commandment. It's so, but it sounds so nice, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Oh, it sounds so nice. Love people. Oh, love is such a nice, pretty word. Um, but I... Love is the fulfillment of the law, right? Scripture says that. Um, Love is the fulfillment of the law. And the law tells us what must be done. The gospel tells us what has been done in Christ, right? That's a big distinction right there. Um, And uh, you can even say that uh, the, the law shows us our sin and the gospel shows us our Savior. Right. Think of uh, is that an acronym? SOS. Right. Mm-hmm. Law shows our sin. Gospel shows our savior. That's a that's like the very surface level of the distinction there. There's there's much more we can go into, but it's very interesting you say that because some people might equate the gospel with a rule, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, yeah, we're we'll I'll I'll leave it there because uh, there's all kinds of distinctions we can make within that. But you see how for Paul, though, we've already talked a little bit about the the world. The world sees the gospel sometimes as law uh, or as other things. How does Paul see the word gospel? How does Paul use gospel in this text? What does he say in verse 16? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Right. So... What is the gospel according to St. Paul? I mean, it's, it's God. It is the power of salvation, salvation right? For everyone. Yeah. That, well, and, and to clarify, it's not just Paul saying this. This is the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul, and this is the word of God coming forth and saying that this is what the gospel is, right? So um, those are two different things, right? Uh, gospel truth on one hand, gospel Music, gospel confused as law versus the power of God for salvation. Uh, which which one would you rather have? <laughs> I think I, I think I know my answer. Um, I'd rather have the power for salvation. Um, so how do these terms that Paul uses, uh, how do these terms apply to your pastor as one who faithfully continues 
this apostolic ministry. And you don't just have to say for me personally, but what does this mean for all pastors? Let's just make it more objective there. All three apply. Okay, how, how do they apply? How do all three apply to pastors nowadays? Should be each one of them. So, let's just go down the list. When it comes to a pastor, how is a pastor a servant slash slave of Christ? Not just as a Christian, but as a pastor. How is he a slave of Christ? Well, I mean, that's, that's your job, is to share the Lord. Mm-hmm. Slave does what his master tells him. That's right. Uh, y'all know that what I, what I wear on Sundays, you know, it's not just something that was picked because it was pretty. As far as wearing an alb, or that's, that's the official name of the white robe, right? It's an alb, A-L-B. And then there's the stole that I wear. And it changes colors based on the season, right? We're coming at, I think Sunday it'll be white because of Trinity. And then once we get into the Trinity season, it'll be green. You know, these, these have been things that we've determined uh, according to tradition and, and things, and for good reason that we won't get into right now. But that stole is a good reminder, not just for the people, but for the pastor. The stole looks like a yoke. Yeah, it's a burden, but notice how it's not made of wood, so I'm not like hunched over while I'm serving y'all communion or anything like that, right? It's it's light, because that's what Jesus says, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but that still means that I don't have the freedom to turn whichever way that I want to, just like an ox doesn't have the freedom to deviate from where his master is driving him to go, right? Um, it's one of those things that I, I, as a pastor, a pastor does not have, like I said, the freedom to disobey, right? Christians don't either, but it's the pastor's deliberate job in being a servant of Christ for the sake of the gospel that um, I can't just ignore, let's just say somebody's open and unrepentant sin because I don't want to deal with the hardship. Right? I have to go where my master leads me to go, and that is to, to go to them and to tell them that they should repent and be forgiven. Right, Receive the forgiveness in God's grace, uh, and that's really what pastors are supposed to do in that situation instead of just avoiding it. Right, That would be me going over here. He's like, no, nope, I don't really want to go there. I think I'm just going to go over this way. Whereas Jesus is driving me to really not just confront somebody, but give them the gospel when they repent, when they confess, and, and, and so on and so forth, right? Um, that's just one example. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, the pastor needs to, to tell you, you are sinning. Mm-hmm. But that also, there is redemption and safe, being saved. That's right. That's just because you're sinning, you know, you're condemned. There yeah. is salvation. Right. So you're, you're covering both sides of it. Right. And that's, that's the flip side of the law-gospel distinction is that gospel is really great, but it doesn't mean anything without the law because uh, the gospel is that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. 
But if I don't tell you that you're a sinner, you're going to think, well, why do I need that? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Um, if you're not shown your sin, you won't need to, you, you won't have the need or the desire to have a savior. Doesn't yeah. Paul say that later on? Mm -hmm. He's like, I would never know what coveting was if the law doesn't right. tell me That's exactly what right. coveting was. Yeah, he gets into that. Like the law doesn't, the law exposes our sin, right? And it shows us what we, you know, just, just how we, uh, what we how bad we to. really are. That's why we have a ninth and a ten command, tenth commandment that both talk about coveting, right? To so show you just like, well, it's not just coveting your neighbor's house, but also coveting your wife, your neighbor's wife as manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor, right? Yeah, so it goes above and beyond to show you that, yeah, you are hopeless by yourself, and you do need a savior. Um, you gotta have both sides, though. Right? You gotta have both sides. Um, and we'll get further into that as we go along. But so a pastor is a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ. He is called. Um, do you all know how that works with pastors, how pastors are called to be pastors? Um, at least our understanding um, is, well, does anyone want to take a shot at it, see how we're called? Well, in our church, it's called by a congregation. Okay. But I had a... I won't mention any names. A best friend of mine, I asked him what his daughter was doing nowadays. Oh, she, she's a pastor at so-and-so church. Yeah. And I, we used to work with a guy in an engineering firm, and uh, he quit to be a pastor of the Live Oak Church. And I'm thinking, how is that a call? It's mm. ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know. Um, different church bodies do it differently, and that doesn't mean that they're all good in how they do it. I would think that... They aren't, honestly. Um, Are you talking about how you got here or how you See, that's a good a question, pastor? right? Do I need to be more specific? And I do because uh, there's different levels. Um, certainly uh, a pastor or a man desiring the office of the pastor uh, or desiring to fill that office should have that pull if he is, you know, reading his Bible He's going to church, he's serving in some capacity, and then something just tells him, I think I want to do more, right? That's the beginning of when he should start to look into, what does that take? What does that look like? How might I, you know, what else can I do? And if you just keep having that pull, in fact, nothing is actually like written in stone. I know, I know that like Roman Catholics like to say, oh, well, you have to have some sort of vision or like you have to have this actual voice that tells you you should become a priest, right? We're not that dogmatic about it, but we do say that uh, certain men are called inwardly at first, but what needs to match that inward call is the outward call of other people telling you without your prompting, really saying, you know, you'd make a good pastor, you know, you should think about becoming a pastor, right? To a man. And so um, that's, that's something that goes with it. And so it's like, I didn't simply just go up to the Missouri Synod and say, I want to be a pastor. Make, just, let, just let me be one. I'm ready to go. They said, okay, um, you're going to have to, you know, we, we, we have a process. You got to sit before a certain committee. Typically it com it's composed of also like your district president, which is kind of like a bishop, you know, just like the overseer in the district or in your region. And 
uh, you'll sit in front of a committee and they'll ask you different questions to kind of test you out to see if you're doing this for the right reasons, you know, and then they'll either recommend you to the seminary or they'll say, we do not recommend you to the seminary. And then from there, you go to the seminary, God willing. Um, I remember they tried to like stop me on some things. They were like, I think one guy, he was like, he said, so when it comes to the service, does it matter to you that we kind of take one piece of the service here and there and kind of make it together? And I was just like, uh, I don't know. That's why I'm going to the seminary. <laughs> it's like, I don't know off the top of my head. That's why I'm going to the seminary so they can teach me, uh, you know, appropriate ways of administering the sacrament and leading a divine service and things like that. And, and, and I could see that he was getting frustrated with me because most of my answers were just like, we're trying to be as humble as I could and say, I don't know. That's why I'm going to the seminary. <laughs> that's why I want to go to the seminary to learn. Right. And I think that's kind of the right attitude is to say, no, I don't know everything. I need to be taught. I need to be guided in this way. But on top of that, just to wrap up a little bit, once you get to the seminary, you not only go through two years and you're under consistent evaluation by your professors, but then you go on vicarage for a year and then you have a supervisor there who says whether or not you do well. And then if you make it past vicarage, then you go on your fourth year and then you have to sit at a theological interview with like two professors grilling you on things, which I think is really just the point of proving to you you don't know everything, right? And then you go on from there. If you, if you pass your theological interview, then you go on to graduating the seminary and then receiving a call. Now that's where it comes to a different sense. That called is that then, once you've gone through that process, uh, then a congregation... The church at large has been given the gift of the office of the keys, and they designate one man to carry out that duty, that responsibility. So a congregation will say, we call you to be the one to administer that office, to preach, to teach, to administer uh, the sacraments of uh, baptism, absolution, and uh, the Lord's Supper, right? And, and, and it's like, we call you to fulfill that duty. And then that's where you get that last part of the call. Um, and then there's the or ordination we won't get into, but that's receiving the orders to go and do all these things, right? Um, so that's similar to the way that Paul went through, and he goes into some more detail about how he became an apostle, that Jesus actually appeared to him, actually he he went and he studied the scriptures. He didn't immediately go from his conversion into being an apostle. He spent some years actually studying the scriptures and learning about how Jesus is the Messiah and so on and so forth. So he was prepared on some level too. Um, it's not just somebody who says, "Oh, I'm 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 today I'm an electrician or a plumber or whatever or a lawyer. Doesn't matter, doctor." And then the next day you say, I want to be a pastor, and boom, that's what I am right now. You know, it's, not, it's not how it works. Uh, in fact, we have these processes within our church body to protect congregations from what we have, for lack of a better term, a hireling, right? Someone who does not love the sheep and who would flee at the first sign of trouble, right? Um, and that's, that's actually kind of an interesting story. And we'll move on from here because uh, we're getting kind of on on time. That's kind of an interesting story with Lutheranism in America when they first came. 
you had the Pennsylvania Ministerium of the first group of Lutherans in America. And there was one guy, uh, I think it was like Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And he was a, uh, he was a Bohemian. Uh, and he was like a um, Moravian. He was a Moravian, which are very close to Lutherans. And he came into a congregation and said, I have been called to be your pastor. And then all of a sudden, the guy who comes over from Germany, who's really sent to be their pastor, comes in and says, you're not the pastor. And he goes, how do you know? And he says, because you don't have a call. And he held the papers in his hand and said, I have been called by this congregation. I have been sent to preach and to do the things that a pastor does in this place. And the congregation said, we side with him. Get out. You don't have a call. He does. Right? So that's, it's very important. It's very important you have these processes in place. Uh, to protect the sheep in the church. Um, and then the gospel. Can I, Can I say this real quick? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was on the calling committee when we hired Pastor Fraker over at Cross. When you called when Pastor. When we called Pastor yeah, Fraker over. Yeah. And so it was very interesting <laughs> to go through that process, mm -hmm. to, to the interviews and what we were looking for and responses. So it was it was very interesting and yeah. educational. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff, it's not in scripture, but we've developed man-made, man, uh, yeah, man processes process. put in by, by man for the sake of good order in the yeah. church. And that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, but it was interesting to go through that mm -hmm. process. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, I hear it's interesting. I've never been on a call committee, so I don't know. But I, yeah. from what I've heard, it's kind of interesting to see how things play out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not so great. Sometimes there's a lot of contention. Sometimes it works out really well. I don't know. Um, Depends. But then there's the gospel, right? So we went through slave of Jesus Christ, called, and then there's the gospel. The chief service of the pastor is to proclaim the gospel. Right? That's, that's the whole point of being a pastor. And that takes on many different forms, not just preaching on Sunday, although that is, that is the primary, that's like the first and foremost way the gospel is preached. But there's also the tying of the word to the sacraments, right? That's also a proclamation of the gospel, reminding people of their baptism, feeding them the body and blood of Christ in Holy Communion, absolving them of their sins one-on-one -on -one if they desire that, right? Um, which is a good practice to do. So um, the gospel is administered in many different, in, in, in several different ways. Um, but that's the chief service is to proclaim and deliver the gospel, the good news to people for a pastor, a pastor. Um, okay, so next part. Let's just keep rolling through because we got to get through this. The central purpose of Paul's mission is to bring about the obedience of faith. This is usually understood by translators as the obedience that springs from faith, but should be understood as obedience that consists of faith. In light of Paul's emphasis throughout this epistle on salvation by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. So uh, we'll go to Romans 10, verse 16, um, which says, Romans 10, 16. Sure, go ahead. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for, is, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Right. In my verse, 
ESV says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Same understanding there, right? So what does it mean to obey the gospel, to accept the good news according to uh, the NIV? What, what is the relationship between faith and good works? And is Paul's primary purpose to bring about faith or the good works that spring from faith? Let's start with that first question there. Um, what does it mean to obey the gospel? If we see it um, uh, comparing chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then 10, 16 it says, for, you know, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So how do you explain that? What does it mean to obey the gospel? To believe it. Yeah, to it means to believe it. Do you, That might be a fine point for, for some people, though, right? Because when you talk about obeying, they probably see that as a work. A bad slave. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Obey uh, or else. As opposed to just being synonymous with believing. Uh, Because what does the gospel demand from us? Does it demand that we do anything? Not for salvation. No. So what what, what does the gospel demand? And I'm looking for one specific word here. What do y'all think? Faith. Faith in Jesus. Yeah, faith. The gospel demands faith, belief, mm-hmm. trust, any of those synonyms you want to throw out there, right? It demands that you believe it. Um, otherwise, it's useless. It doesn't mean anything. It, it's, it's there for you, but it doesn't benefit you in any way without belief, without trust, without faith. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so to obey the gospel means to believe the gospel. Um, and what is, what is the relationship between faith and good works? I think sometimes we as Lutherans kind of get a little on edge with questions like this, but what do y'all think? They go hand in hand. Yes, they do. They do go hand in hand. Um, obedience flows from faith. Yeah. Can you say something, Trump? I was yeah. going to say, I think faith comes first. Absolutely. Yeah. And work should just be the uh, fruition of that, I guess. That's a great word because it is fruit, right? It is good fruit. Um, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you so that you would go forth and bear much fruit. Um, not of your own accord, not of your own will, but now as you know, children of God, uh, as Christians, as believers, in Christ, as slaves of Christ, you go forth and bear fruit. Um, yeah, fruition is a great word for that. So it just happens. You don't have to think about it. It's not something that you are obligated to do in that your salvation depends on it, but now it is something that you get to do as someone that Christ has died for. Right? It's, it's, no longer an, it's no longer a burden, but a joy. Right? But obedience follows faith. Um, God hasn't called you to one, but not the other. Right? God has not called you to simply obey and not believe. And just like he hasn't called you to believe 
but not obey. They both go hand in hand, right? Um, any thoughts on that? Any, any, anyone want to chime in further on that one? I wrote, Paul wants them to understand that salvation comes from faith, not good works. But that when you accept that, accept that grace through faith, you want to do good works because of your love for the Lord. Yeah. That, yeah, you want to do these things. Yeah. And we can go on and on about how it works. You don't need grace for them either. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. Right. That you're not... We're not strengthening our faith through the works. Yeah. Yeah, we're, our, our, our faith is strengthened by the Word of God and by what He does for us and the means of grace as well. But also, you know, God, good works are, we as Lutherans like to make this distinction and we do it in our, in our confessions that good works, we were, we were lambasted by, by the, the papists, um, you know, and I use that term. People might think it's derogatory. Okay, fine. Uh, the, those who follow the Pope, right, the Roman Catholics at the time, they said the Lutherans don't care about good works. They just want you to believe in the gospel and then you can do whatever you want. And uh, we said, that's not true. We have always said that good works are necessary, uh, not for salvation, but in making a good confession of faith. It's the same thing that James gets into with his epistle. In fact, I'd love to do uh, a Bible study on the book of James, but James is one of those books you don't get into unless you read a book like Romans. It's, it's a lot of weeds. you got to get through a lot of stuff, and you have to th have things clarified first before you get into the nitty-gritty of James. But James is dealing with people who say, I'm a Christian, but then they don't act like it. right? And he's basically saying to them as their pastor, you can't just say you are a Christian and then do things that an unbeliever does. It doesn't work like that. You're a false prophet. You're, you're a hypocrite, right? Um, it's like he uses the example. It's, it's like if you sit in the, high, in, in the places of honor in a church and uh, the people who sit in the lower spot, you know that's your brother in Christ and you know that they're cold and they're starving, and you simply walk by and say, be warm and be filled, and walk away. You're, you're no better than an unbeliever. In fact, you're worse than an unbeliever, right? So that's, that's, that's a bit of admonishment, but also encouragement for us Christians to really say, where have I fallen short? Where do I need to repent? And where do I need to believe that Christ has died for even that sin of where I've fallen short, so that you know, uh, I can go forth again by his grace and bear good fruit, uh, by his, by the power of the spirit. Right. Um, so there's that. <laughs> Any, anybody else want to chime in on that one before we move on? There's the podcast of the guys that was listening to on the KFUO, KFOU yeah. radio. K yeah. KFUO. Going yeah. Through article four or five. Right now, of the apology mm -hmm. of the Oxford Confession, they, it's it's like this huge thing that's been going on for months now about faith and works, and where the Catholic Church at the time was like, it's faith perfected by love, right? 
and they were like, well, if your works is are there to be like a measuring stick for how good a Christian you are, that is not the way you should be looking at it. Because right. you'll never do enough. That's right. How will you know that your works have made you righteous enough? That's right. Yeah, and for anybody that, that, that wants to know more about that, it's called uh, Concord Matters, if you listen to podcasts and things like that. So oh, it's great. Concord Matters. It's a great show. Um, they just get into the book of Concord, and they just talk about it. <laughs> it's kind of neat. Um, but yeah, you're right, that there's this there there's a big debate. I At some point, though, the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans were kind of talking past each other because we had a different emphasis and definition of terms at a certain point. Um, But also, yeah, we were trying to make the point as best as we could, no, you can't do enough. Um, That, yeah, faith is perfected by, what did he say? Um, It said faith perfected by love. By love, yeah. Which meant, I guess, works. That's right. So it's a misunderstanding. It's an error that crept in the church that we corrected, but Rome didn't want to hear it. Um, it, it would actually would have messed up with their penitential system and everything too. So yeah. it, it, it would have, it, it would have meant that people would have had to give to the church out of voluntarily. Yeah. Voluntarily and not out of compulsion. Right. They're getting into heaven unless you go. Exactly. Yeah. It would have messed with their whole system. Um, that's not to say that some people, that some Roman Catholics sincerely believe that that's the case and that, that, that they think that's what it should be. Um, but really, overall, we know that the truth is that that's really a... And I'll just say it because we're in an age where we should speak plainly about these things. It's a lie of Satan. It's, it, you know, Satan Satan crept into the church and taught it lies and, and, the, and the people in the higher-ups bought it. Right? It was a bad, bad, bad thing. And it still goes on today. Um, so, okay. So... Is Paul's primary purpose to bring about faith or the good works that spring from faith? Bring about faith. Bring about faith. That's right. Right. Yeah. So saving faith is the is paramount because then good works flow forth from that. Uh, and you can't separate the two. They can't be pitted against each other. Um, and they go hand in hand. So, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, for the sake of time, let's keep on going. Roman Christians, we can get through this. I believe it. The called apostle addresses the Roman Christians as called ones of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 6, and called saints in verse 7. This refers to the call to faith, especially in baptism. Uh, Paul transforms the typical Greco-Roman greeting with the words grace and peace, reflecting his Jewish background. Shalom or peace remains a common Jewish greeting today. Uh, The greeting of the typical Greco-Roman letter, on the next page there, would be followed by a short thanksgiving to the gods for the health and well-being of the addressee or addressees. Paul usually includes a thanksgiving section in his letters, except in Galatians, but uses it to offer thanks to the one true God for his work in nurturing the faith and life of the congregation. His prayer here includes a request to see the Roman church in person because he desires to impart some spiritual gift. Paul is not planning to give some specialized spiritual gift similar to those in dispute among the Corinthians, 
or the kind listed on modern spiritual gift inventories. Instead, he plans to preach the gospel, which will in itself give spiritual blessings to the congregation according to their need. The purpose of this gift is in order to strengthen you. So what strength does the gospel give? Ask that question first. What strength is in the gospel? The gospel promises that all who believe and accept Jesus as a Savior shall be saved from eternal death. Yeah. Okay. Anybody want to add to that? Elaborate a little bit, maybe, too? If possible? What's that? Assurance of what? On the last day, you don't have to worry about death. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, for sure. Because what does the gospel do? Like, why is the gospel such good news? What does it do away with? Fear. Uh, Yeah, but because what's been done away with? Sin. Sin. Sin Sin is taken away by the gospel, right? And so it gives you confidence that you belong to God, uh, that you are no longer, like I said before, a slave to sin, but a slave to God by faith. Um, so how is this a gift? Some, some people might say, okay, so what? It gives me peace of mind. How does it give you peace of mind? Because I know where I'm going to go once I leave this earth. I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. Okay. Yeah. So I don't have anything to fear about dying. Yeah. Carolyn, you're gonna say something? Gives us an assurance. Assurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Assurance of salvation. Mm-hmm. Assurance that your sins have been, you know, that, that you're cleansed of your sin. Um and, and and maybe we don't like to think about it so much, but I think the time is coming more and more where we're gonna be facing more and more hardships as Christians because of what we believe. And Satan is, I, I believe, taking his last stand right now. He's been doing so for a long time, you could argue. But he's taking his last stand. He's doing all that he can. He's pulling out all the tricks so that even Christians would fall away. He's been doing that for a long time. But now, I think especially in America, we're seeing a lot of stuff happening. Uh, we're having to deal with all sorts of horrible things. Um, not just homosexuality, transgenderism, mutilation of children because of this stuff, you know, uh, hormone blockers, uh, grooming, abortion. I mean, he's pulling out all the stops. And we as Christians stand in the gap and we say, no, this is a sin. Repent and believe in the gospel, right? Uh, because this is wrong what you believe. Um, and, but... Christ offers something better. And so when we face the demonic forces, what's lobbed at us is what? Threats, lies, lies, slander, all sorts of things that would tempt us to cower and to not engage with the evil that's in the world, to just kind of go off in our cloisters and not do anything. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't regroup, especially on Sundays when we come to church. But when we go out into the world, 
we are tempted to stand down because we just don't want to deal with the pain and the suffering and the persecution. But if the worst thing that anybody in the world can do to us is kill us, I mean, seriously, what, what, is, what is the worst thing that anybody can do to us? You, you don't even have that on me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if the worst thing you can do is kill me, mm-hmm. bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> do it. I dare you, yeah. right? Not that I'm going out and seeking death, but if that's what's going to come to me because I'm making a good confession of Christ, mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. The Lord, the, the Lord, you, you will be shown, so. yeah, you will be shown to be the biggest fool ever. Because like Luther said, uh, when the Muslims were, when the Turkish Muslims were basically about to invade Vienna and like all of Europe was, was cowering in fear, wondering if they were going to be um, subjected to the Muslim Turks, Luther, I, I don't know if it's apocryphal Luther, if it was actually him or it's just attributed to him or whatever, but it's great. He said, let the Turks come and take my head because I have a God who will give me another one. You know? So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where we, we can now be bold because the worst thing that the devil can do to us is kill us. But as we say all the time, or as we should say, or we remind ourselves that in our baptisms, we have been joined with Christ and that what has been defeated is the power of sin, death, and the power of the devil. That those things, yeah, they're scary, uh, and they do have some bite to them. But, but in the end, it's God's wrath. It's nothing. Yeah, yeah. What is what is what is what is Jesus saying? Do not fear the one who can uh, kill the body, but fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Yeah, fear God. Don't fear Satan. Uh, Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So yeah, so we should be bold to serve Christ, to serve our neighbor that he has placed in our life for the sake of the gospel, right? Um, How about in verses 14 through 15, how does Paul describe his work of preaching the gospel? 14 through 15. Chapter 1. To teach it to everyone. Yeah, he's obligated to preach to everyone, Jews, Gentiles. Uh, he's uh, including the wise and the foolish, right? everybody. Uh, and he's eager to get started. He's chomping at the bit, right? Because of that boldness of the gospel. He's not ashamed, right? I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's ready to go, right? He's got a fervor. Well, it's funny that nowadays, like, if, if you read mainstream media, they're always getting upset about people in a religious fervor. Like, all oh, those Christians, they're just, they're, they're, they're so far out there. They're just, they're just filled with religious fervor. And I just think to myself, I wish we had more. Yeah. I wish I, I wish we had more religious fervor in this world, like Christian fervor, um, Christian zeal to actually to actually go out and be bold in our confession, not not being harsh for the sake of being harsh, but actually calling out sin where we need to, and forgiving where it's sought, right? To do the work of God as He's called us to do however we've been called to do it, 
uh, in our own vocations and stations in life. Um, Buy the newspaper and read the editorials today. Okay. Yeah? Mm-hmm. They good? Mm-hmm. Or bad? Because sometimes it's they can be good. bad. It's good. Okay. Buy the newspaper that came out today and just read the editorials. You'll know which one I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, see, since we've moved, we've been moving around a lot and then we finally got into our house, we haven't updated our uh, subscription yet, so we'll have to, have to get into that. Um, all right. Last part here. The power of the gospel is Christ. We can do this. We can get done at the bottom of the hour. Romans 1, 16 through 17, introduces the central theme of the letter. Paul's choice of verbs may reflect the fact that the gospel was under some attack in Rome. He boldly preaches that God himself bears the punishment of all sins in the crucifixion and death of Christ. He emphasizes this foolishness as the center and heart of his proclamation. See that further fleshed out in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 16. We should not understand the gospel as an abstract message that is disconnected from the reality of Christ. It is not mere positive thinking or just any good news. It is the gospel. In the gospel, Christ presents himself to us. Uh, C.B. Cranfield expresses the relationship between Christ and the power of the gospel. He says, the gospel is its subject Jesus Christ. It is, that is, the gospel is he himself who is its effectiveness, right? So compare how Paul uses the expression power of God in Romans 1.16 and 1 Corinthians 1.24. So if you want to keep a thumb in Romans 1 and then flip real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24... Uh, who wants to read that verse? First Corinthians 1, verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Right, so, that compared to the gospel being the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, um, how does that support Cranfield's definition of the gospel? Do you all understand his definition? The gospel is Christ. Yeah. Does that support, is, is, do those two um, verses support that notion? Yeah. Uh, how? What does he say about Christ and the gospel in those two verses? Well, I mean, Christ is so, forgiveness of sins. Right, so but very, very directly, though, in Romans 1.16, what, what does Paul say the gospel is? Power of God. The power of God. In, Rome, in, in 1 Corinthians 1.24, what does he say about Christ? Both Jews Christ and the, power Christ of God. the power of God. Yeah, Christ the is the power of God. God. Mm-hmm. The gospel is the power of God. Christ is the power of God. Ergo... The Christ and the gospel are synonymous. You cannot talk about the gospel without talking about Jesus. You cannot talk about Jesus without talking about the gospel. Right? They go hand in hand. Um, they are inseparable. You just can't divide them. It's impossible. Um, so what power does the gospel have? Uh, give some examples from your life and congregation. That's the last question for us tonight. 
First of all, what power does the gospel have? We've kind of already said it, but let's go ahead and reiterate it a little bit more. Power to save. Power to save. Absolutely. Anything else? It's all kind of That kind of sums it up. <laughs> yeah, power to save. Yeah. Power to save. Uh, yeah. Reconciliation between God and man. Absolutely. People's hearts so the Holy Spirit can enter. Absolutely. Yeah. Power to span time for all eternity. That's very interesting. The faith once delivered for all the saints, right? Um, as. Oh, was that. It wasn't Paul. It was. Um, was it Jude? Faith once delivered for all the saints. Uh, yeah, it spans space and time. The gospel is for all people everywhere, right? Uh, I mean, the gospel was from the very beginning. Uh, the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. Yeah. I think he's addressing it to Rome, Rome Roman people. Okay. And Rome, what was going on in Rome? The same things that are going on in our country. Absolutely. The, the, uh, yes. Sinful uh, in every form. And it was wide open then, and he addressed it with God's word, and that's what we, what we have to go to. We can't get involved in arguments about why they shouldn't do transgender, why they shouldn't, and that, uh, all of that is human thinking. It's not, uh, it's leaving God out of the picture. It's by trying saying, well, you, you know, biologically and shouldn't, you know, and so forth. There's a lot of argument against uh, um, just argument for the sake of argument. Mm -hmm. yeah, they just argue for the sake of arguing. Yeah. They like to pretend yeah. they don't know what the answer is. But if we get caught up in that argument instead of God as the answer, that God's word has answers. We're, I'm not. You know, we we as Christians never, and especially and specifically Lutheran Christians, we we understand that God reveals Him in dif Himself in different ways. Um, what I mean by that is that um, God certainly reveals Himself in His Word. We know exactly what His will is according to His Word. But even if you're not a Christian, you can look out in nature. There's a natural revelation that God has given us. And sometimes that needs to be the starting point for some people. I mean, if, if you have somebody who seriously wants to have a legitimate conversation as to why homosexuality is bad, why abortion is wrong, or why any of these things, if they want to have that conversation, we can have that conversation. But if it doesn't end with the Word of God, if it doesn't end with telling them exactly, and, and letting the Word do the work on some level too, I think you're kind of missing the point because like you said, we can get into all these mm -hmm. arguments and we can get into all these things which are not, which don't profit nothing. There's some good things to be had from it. But if that's the end goal is to win an argument, we miss the entire point. We miss the entire point. Um, and I think that Satan wants us to play that game. Satan wants us to play the game of just arguing for the sake of arguing he doesn't want us to get to the Word. He doesn't want us to talk about how God's Word actually talks about how He created male and female and He created them and that they are brought together in union and marriage and 
and all sorts of things like that. He doesn't want us to get into those things, but we should. We should. Yeah, I think we For the do. sake of people knowing the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth. Yeah. Sometimes and I think Satan uses it in the church, too. I'm looking back at history, thinking back, Missouri Synod, mm-hmm. Stephen, bringing this group of people <laughs> over, and he's the leader, he's going to, and then he's... Yeah, there's all kinds of problems. Be because immorality. Yeah, there's all so of this. Things, yeah. Satan loves to use within the church and some of the mm-hmm. the, um, well, the, the people that we think Jesus. we look up to, and if they fall or stumble, and we <laughs> yeah, well, and Satan is at work. In yeah. the church and in the society. I think it, I, I think it's interesting, and we'll close on this point. I, I think it's interesting that you brought up, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the church in Rome. Mm-hmm. What kind of problems did Rome have at this time? It's all the problems we're having today. Yes. But how does Paul address those problems? He does not say, oppose Nero because what he's doing is wrong. He doesn't say, go out and fight people, go out and, you know, solve it this way and this way. Who's he beginning with? He's beginning with the household of God. That if we are not united in our teaching, if we are not united in the fundamentals of faith and doctrine, uh, we wind up shooting each other in the back. And... Instead, instead of focusing on what's really important, which is basically saving souls, you know, or being a part of that process and sharing the gospel. And it's not paramount if we're squabbling over doctrine. But it's important to have those issues of doctrine settled. Because if you don't have those points settled, at least on some fundamental level, like let's say... Like I think I think it was really important that it, it's 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 important for us as Lutherans today uh, to say yes we are confessional Lutherans and we believe certain things about how we believe and we believe that other church bodies may have certain things wrong but when it comes to a fight about abortion whether that's right or wrong if we can't join with the Baptists on this we miss the point right we can talk about points of doctrine like baptism and Holy Communion some other day when we're not fighting the evil of abortion, right? Uh, Let's get that doctrine straight first, that life is precious, that those children are made in the image of God according to the Word of God, right? Let's get that straight first and move on from there. Other Christians, well, I guess if you could call yourself a Christian and say that abortion is okay, um, we might have to just mark and avoid them for a certain time and then come back and talk about that. We have to be strategic. But there's a difference between strategy and tactics. We have to have the overall strategy that we're going to abide by the Word of God, and our tactics can kind of shift according to what the Word of God says we should be doing. Right? Every single day, you don't have to be fighting the same single battle. Today, you can focus on you know praying for... Um, praying for the Supreme Court. Tomorrow you can focus on praying for uh, your 
uh, police officers or, you know, or praying for your fellow Christians or going and seeing what you can do for the fellow body of Christ, things like that. But the overall point is that we need to be abiding by the word of God and doing all we can to proclaim the gospel in word and deed, right? Um, okay, so the gospel has the power of salvation, right? It's the power of God for salvation to all that believe, and it grants life and peace to individuals and to congregations. So with that, we'll close. We're way over time, way, way, way over time. But hopefully this has been a good conversation, a good good class and discussion for y'all. Um, words to remember, though. Uh, Romans 1.17, for in the gospel, a righteousness for God, from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay? Uh, to prepare for the next section, read the bottom of the page there, uh, the section called God's Righteousness, uh, session three. Uh, funny enough, you're not going to be reading Romans. You're going to be reading Isaiah, Isaiah 45. Verses 22 through 25, uh, Isaiah 46, verses 12 through 13, and Isaiah 51, verses 5 through 6. You'll see that at the bottom of page 13. Um, so read those passages in pre preparation for next time. Um, uh, yeah, so at the bottom of page 13, you'll see the passages you'll need to read. And uh, go through the next study, read, read through it. Answer those questions as best you can and come ready to discuss for next time, okay? Um, with that, we'll just go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.